all of you who registered for, for Middle East Peace Now uh, January 30th forum uh, featuring Dr. Hadar Eid. I will introduce him in just a moment, but before I do, I would like to uh, welcome our co-host, the American Muslims for Palestine in Minnesota. Um, it will be uh, Sana, who is representing um, this organization who will conduct the, the Q&A once Dr. Eid has completed his talk. Um, I would also like to welcome our co-sponsors, Jewish, Jewish Voice for Peace in the Twin Cities, and of course, always William uh, Women Against Military Madness. We really appreciate um, everyone's support. I also want to bring up um, the um, Northfielders for Justice in Palestine and Israel. I know that they also promote our forums, and we are grateful to all of the organizations who uh, co-promote our programs. And we do the same for you all, of course. And we're all in this together. Um, once I have introduced uh, Dr. Eid, I'll be turning this over to Maddie, who will conduct uh, some uh, housekeeping items. But before I do, just a brief introduction. Um, Dr. Eid and I had a, a nice short conversation prior to the beginning of this Zoom, and I know that he will... He will provide a, an excellent form. Dr. Eid holds a PhD from the University of Johannesburg, South Africa, and is a member of the Palestinian Campaign for Academic Boycott of Israel, Al-Shabaka Policy Advisor, a founding member of the One Democratic State Campaign, and Associate Professor of Post-Colonial and Postmodern Literature at Gaza's Al-Aqsa University. He has written widely on the Arab-Israeli conflict, including books books uh, um, such as Worlding Postmodernism, Interpretive Possibilities of Critical Theory and Countering the Palestinian Nakba, One State for All. Dr. Eid also regularly contributes to um, such online forums as Middle East Eye, and uh, um, he, he is well known in, in the circles of BDS, which is one topic that he will be addressing this morning or this afternoon for Dr. Eid. Welcome, a warm, warm welcome to Dr. Eid. Assalamu alaikum. Um, and uh, right now I'll turn it over to Madeline Hallberg, our fellow board member, who will discuss some short housekeeping items and then we'll continue. Thank you, Janet, and thank you, Dr. Eid, for being with us um, today. So just a few notes um, here. We will have um, hearing, be hearing from Dr. Aid for about uh, 45 minutes or so with about 15 minutes um, of Q&A following that. So all participants will be muted for the duration of this event and please submit your questions using the Q&A feature of Zoom. And um, we reserve the chat feature for any administrative or help questions. Um, if Zoom is really not working for you and you need to submit a question to get a hold of us, um, please email mepn at mepn.org and we will try to help. Um, as mentioned before, this is also being streamed live on Facebook. Um, so if you leave Zoom for any reason and can't get back in, um, you can catch the rest of the presentation there. And this event will also be available on the East Side Freedom Library's YouTube channel in the coming week. And then lastly, our event uh, next month is on February 27th, co-hosted with WAM. And it is, we'll be hearing from um, Professor Mazen Pumsia um, of Birzit University and Bethlehem University. So thanks very much. Um, and we'll talk with you during Q&A. Okay. Uh, can you hear me, sorry? Yeah, perfectly. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, thank you uh, to uh, Middle East 
Peace Now, and thank you, Maya, thank you, Yanni, thank you, Madi. And, and let me begin um, by, by, as I did, I mean, by thanking everybody here, Middle East Peace Now, for organizing this um, online activity with us here in, um, in besieged Gaza. Um, when I was contacted um, a couple of weeks ago by uh, my friend Maya, uh, we, we discussed uh, the topic in general that I'm supposed to be addressing right now, and we decided to give um, a sort of a background summary um, of the situation in Gaza um, from the, the horror of the blockade um, and the three wars of aggression uh, that took place in 2009, 2012, 2014, and then move to uh, the necessity of international intervention uh, in the form of BDS boycott, divestment, and sanctions as the most effective tool of solidarity with the Palestinian people. And how to avoid um, normalization with, with, with apartheid Israel um, by heeding the BDS call made by uh, the overwhelming majority of Palestinian civil society back in 2005. And of course, if, if participants um, were interested in listening to my personal view on, uh, on political uh, solutions, I, I, uh, I, I can add my two cents. So let us, um, um, let us begin by, uh, actually, when I started preparing myself for this talk, um, the first thing that came to my mind um, was um, a quote from one of my favorite Jewish philosophers, um, uh, Walter Benjamin. And one of my favorite quotes is, um, there is no document of civilization which is not at the same time a document of barbarism, end of quote. Obviously my talk is about the barbarism of apartheid in the Middle East. And, and I'm going to start off by uh, giving you, um, you know, a brief idea about our daily life here, here in Gaza. Um, you know, in the last 12 years, and I'm, I'm, I'm taking you back to 2008, 2009, um, until today, Israel has launched three massive wars on, 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 on the besieged Gaza. And many of the civilians were massacred, as everybody knows, by the indiscriminate bombing. Uh, which has been condemned by the United Nations, by United Nations experts and leading human rights organizations such as, uh, you know, um, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and even, you know, Israeli mainstream human rights organizations such as Beit Salem. And um, these assaults, these three massive assaults, lift over and as much as a hate to talk about your numbers and figures, because we are talking about human beings. We are talking about people. We are talking about individuals with families, with children, with, you know, with, with fathers, with mothers, etc., etc. But still, I have to give you numbers. Uh, those three massive massacres left over 3,800 um, people dead, uh, predominantly civilians. Um, of whom hundreds were children. Children were massacred in broad day, um, you know, life. Another 15,000 
were injured. So the point is that we, the, the, the 2 million Palestinians in the besieged Gaza Strip, the overwhelming majority of us are refugees, in um, refugees who were violently expelled and dispossessed from our homes by you know, Zionist militias in 1948. We were subjected in, 2000, in, in, in 2009, we were subjected to uh, three weeks of, of you know, relentless attacks. In 2012, the same thing happened again for two weeks. And then in 2014, we were also subjected to the same attacks for more than 50 days. My point is that um, these attacks reduced whole neighborhoods, including my, home, my own neighborhood, Tal al-Hawa, where I live, where I am addressing you from right now, um, you know, whole neighborhoods and vital civilian infrastructure were reduced to rubble, to rubble, literally, and completely destroyed, including tens of schools. Now, this came, and that is my point, this came after, you know, years of an ongoing crippling deadly medieval siege that has been imposed in Ga on Gaza since 2000, since 2007. Uh, which is, by the way, which is a severe form of collective punishment. The deadly blockade that has been imposed on Gaza by apartheid Israel is clearly a form of collective punishment according to major human rights organizations and the International Committee of the Red Cross. And just to remind you and to remind everybody listening right now, uh, the, the fourth Geneva Convention of 1949, ratified by Israel itself, by the way, bans collective punishment of a civilian population. So here we are talking about a crime. A crime that is, that is still being committing, committed by apartheid Israel since 2007. So I'll take you back to the first massive attack, 2009. A UN fact-finding uh, mission uh, on the Gaza conflict headed by the highly respected South African judge Richard Goldstone and I met him. I met him in person when he came to Gaza and that uh, uh, that mission, that fact-finding fact mission uh, found Israel guilty of, and I'm quoting, war crimes and possible crimes against humanity, end of quote as did other major international human rights organizations, as I said, organizations such as Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, etc. But the point is that the same scenario that um, happened in 2009 um, uh, was repeated in 2012, and a worse one in 2014. And the reason why, and, and we expect it to happen again, by the way, and the reason why Israel felt, you know, that, you know, it could do that and it could come back and attack the Gaza Strip again and again. And bluntly speaking, because Israel feels and knows that it can carry out its war crimes with full impunity, with full impunity. The world, the so-called international community has done absolutely nothing to prevent these um, uh, you know, war crimes. But let me 
uh, instead of delving into, you know, what exactly happened in 2009, 2012, 2014, let me just, you know, talk a little bit more about our daily life here, um, here in Gaza, where people also suffer from, you name it, contamination of water. 97% uh, of Gaza's water is undrinkable. Undrinkable. 97%. Um, you know, contamination of air, soil, and just to give you an example, medical conditions due to, you know, injuries, uh, you know, caused by international prohibited Israeli weapons, um, as well as from, of course, water contamination cannot be treated because of the siege. Israel also prevents many other necessities from being imported. And here I'm talking about very simple, very simple stuff, very simple products, light bulbs, candles, uh, matches, books, refrigerators, shoes, clothing, mattresses, paper, pens, books, etc., etc. Um, add to this, and right now I was just uh, talking to my comrades from before we started the, this session, that I'm using a generator run right now uh, because we have drastic, uh, you know, drastic cuts, um, you know, uh, power cuts, and you know, almost every day we get electricity six to seven hours a day. Add to this problem the drastic cuts endorsed by UNRWA, United Nations Release and Work Agency, uh, uh, not to mention, of course, the closure of the seven crossings Gaza has to the external world. One crossing, the Rafah crossing, which is the only exit that Gaza has to the external world um, um, and which is controlled by the Egyptian authorities in cahoot with Israel has been closed for, for, for years. And this, all these conditions have led to one of the highest unemployment rates and poverty on the face of earth. So in spite of Israel's, uh, you know, alleged unilateral withdrawal from the strip, from the Gaza Strip in 2005, it still maintains a permanent military presence in Gaza's territorial waters and controls the movements of people and goods onto the strip by, by land and water in addition to movement within the strip through targeting anyone entering the no-go zone designated by the Israeli military, of course. Israel also continues to control Gaza's population registry. Um, the same way the apartheid system of South Africa controlled the population registry. Yet, and here's the point, that Israel claims that it is no longer the occupying power in the Gaza Strip and uses this excuse in addition, of course, to the results of the 2006 democratic elections that took place in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, Israel is using these excuses to intensify its policy of siege and lethal attacks on us, the civilians of Gaza. And as everybody knows, last year, Israel decided to become openly an apartheid state by legalizing racial discrimination. And honestly, I really, I spent, I spent about six to seven years in South Africa. 
And I studied the situation in South Africa as, uh, as was mentioned in the introduction, I'm graduate of the University of Johannesburg. So I know what apartheid is uh, all about. And I have tried very hard, very, very hard to find out whether there are constitutions or laws in the world, in the world, similar to Israel's new nation state basic law, which aims to establish a legal basis for, you know, Jewish supremacy and racism against, you know, indigenous Palestinians. And they have looked at, you know, South Africa and they have looked even at the American South under the Jim Crow laws. And these laws, basic laws, especially the nation the nation state basic law, targeting those living in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, and those living in what has become, especially as here, the, the largest and amusing, uh, you know, um, words used by Amnesty International, by even B'Tselem, the, the largest open air prison on earth, the Gaza Strip. And the conclusion I've reached personally is that only South Africa under apartheid and America in the eras of slavery and segregation. And now we have in Gaza the epidemic, the you know, COVID-19 coronavirus to deal with. So you have the largest open air prison completely controlled by apartheid Israel. People cannot leave the Gaza Strip. People cannot come in. Israel controls every single movement. And now we have the coronavirus to deal with. You know, so while many countries uh, shut borders, including you know, the United States of America, and enforce you know, closure, et cetera, et cetera, uh, we thought that was you know, the fact that we are under a siege, that fact that we are isolated, uh, you know, that we thought that we were safe from the coronavirus because nobody's allowed in, nobody's allowed out, et cetera, et cetera. But unfortunately, as it has with so much of the rest of the world, COVID-19 found a way into Gaza. At, at the moment, um, we are finding it um, extremely difficult, extremely difficult to deal with the um, existing, you know, thousands, thousands of cases. In fact, we are in deep trouble. In Gaza here, we know very well that we are in deep trouble. Um, notice Gaza has only 60 intensive care unit bits, bits and 65 ventilators for a population of 2 million. Now imagine that. Let me repeat that again. I mean, 60 intensive care unit beds and 65 ventilators for a population of 2 million, uh, which means that we have only two intensive care units beds per 100,000 people. That's how bad it is. That's how bad it is in Gaza. Um, and, you know, as if 12 years of blockade interrupted by, you know, the three massive, some people even call them genocidal wars, um, including, um, you know, our friend and comrade, Professor Richard Paul, 
the former uh, special rapporteur to the occupied territories, including our comrade Elan Pape, the courageous historian who calls the blockade an incremental genocide. And as if that was not enough, so Israel has decided to tighten the blockade, not allow the treatment of you know, patients and terminally ill people in West Bank um, uh, hospitals. And you know very well, honestly, um, and people, people who know history very well, I really wonder uh, whether there has been a population, you know, a population that has been denied, you know, the basic requirements for survival as a deliberate policy of colonization, occupation, and apartheid, a multiple, a multi-tiered form of oppression. But this is what Israel is doing to us, the people of, you know, Palestine in general, and the people of Gaza in particular. Two million people live without, literally, literally, two million people live without a secure supply of water, food, electricity, medicines, with almost half of us being children under the age of 15. So you can imagine that. <clears throat> so now the point is, this is what we are living. This is what we are going through. So what to do? I mean, what is the solution? How can you people outside help? And what can we here in Palestine, in Gaza as well, do? And this is why, uh, you know, now let me, let me uh, move to the second part, you know, of my talk. Um, and uh, what is to be done? Um, and, and my point is that it's very clear, like what happened in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s of last century against the apartheid system, the outside world intervened. And this is what we are saying. We are saying is that what we are saying right now here. And when I say we, I'm talking about Palestine civil society, Palestinian civil society sectors, the outside world has to intervene. And this is why we issued our call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions back in 2005, BDS. No wonder then that, you know, leading anti-apartheid activists, um, and I'm talking about, you know, the likes of, you know, um, the late Ahmed Kathrada, I'm talking about Archbishop Desmond Tutu, I'm talking about, uh, you know, our comrade Roni Kasserl's anti-apartheid activists, um, who told us very clearly, and I heard them, I heard them say that, that they believe that what Israel is doing to us, to Palestinians, I heard it from Roni Kassas and I've heard it from Desmond Tutu. What Israel has been doing to us is far worse than what was done to black South Africans under apartheid. Even former American president, Jimmy Carter, he visited Gaza, he visited Gaza. Um, I think it was um, at the end of 2009. Um, and on that visit to Gaza, he stated clearly he stated very clearly, and I remember very well, that the Palestinian people trapped in Gaza are being treated, quote unquote, like animals. And he said, Gaza is a cage. And the people of Gaza are, <coughs> excuse me, being treated 
by apartheid Israel like animals. No wonder, no wonder then that he gave, you know, that title to his book, Palestine, uh, apartheid um, not peace. So we have, we have reached the conclusion here as Palestinians, as Palestinian civil society, that our fight on the, on, you know, on, as you know, in, in terms or in the form of popular resistance can seriously, like the fight against the apartheid system of South Africa, can pose a threat to Israel's system of occupation, colonization, and apartheid only, only if it is accompanied by a global, you know, campaign of boycott, divestment, and sanctions. So these are the two pillars of struggle that we are uh, focusing on right now. So popular resistance on the ground, accompanied by a global campaign of boycott, divestment, and sanctions. And this is why, very clearly, I'm saying it very clearly to you that we need ordinary citizens of the world, such as yourselves, including, of course, Americans. And, and you remember the, in, in, uh, in 19, uh, you know, the older generation remembers this very well. In 1986, Ronald Reagan called Nelson Mandela a terrorist, if you remember. And so did Margaret Thatcher. That was in the mid 80s. 1990, Nelson Mandela was released from the Robben Islands and then he became the first black president of multiracial, multiracial South Africa. And what we are saying is that, you know, with our global BDS campaign, we are reaching our South African moment, the moment that they have just, you know, alluded to. And, um, and, and I think, yes, people need to intervene. You need to act. It's that, you know, it's that moral, um, ethical responsibility that every single citizen in the world has. Um, uh, you know, you need with us to show Israel that, you know, that you are watching, that you are watching what it is doing to us and that you are not going to tolerate it because silence, very simply, silence is complicity. That's what Martin Luther, uh, Martin Luther King had to say as well. Silence is complicity, a complicity, and that there is no place for blatant racism and racial and religious supremacy in the world. That's what you did with, uh, with Donald Trump, with that white supremacy. Racism, that's what it is. Let's call a spade a spade. And, and this is exactly what the global anti-apartheid managed to do in the 1970s and 80s, as I said, of last century, until the inhumane apartheid system crumbled in 1994. And, and you know, I know some people here don't know what BDS is all about. And I want just to give a very, very brief introduction. I mean, BDS is a civil society initiative. Let's be clear about that. It's a civil society initiative, a call made by our civil society, almost, almost all Palestinian civil society sectors issued a call back in 2005. You know, us as, as, as victims of, multi, of a multitude system of oppression, occupation, colonization, and apartheid, fighting on behalf of the international community for the rule of the law, 
for the rule of law in Palestine. So we decided to issue that call, calling on the international community to boycott apartheid Israel until it complies with international law. Namely, so if people don't know what we are asking for, we are, we are fighting for the implementation of United Nations Resolution 194, which calls for the right of Palestinian refugees to the towns and villages from which we were ethnically cleansed in 1948. I myself, my parents were refugees. I was born in a refugee camp in the Gaza Strip, grew up in that, um, you know, that refugee camp. And my parents, both my parents died in 2005, dreaming, dreaming of the day when they would be allowed to return to the village of Zarnuga. Unfortunately, unfortunately, they did, they, I mean, they didn't. And they died, both of them died in 2005, carrying the key of the house which they left uh, in 1948. So, and, and, and because uh, Maya asked me, uh, you know, to talk a little bit about normalization, et cetera, and BDS, and I have also been getting, we as BDS activists here, we have been getting queries, you know, sent by some, uh, some activists about, you know, international gatherings and conferences that are organized usually to address BDS um, related issues without, and here's my point, without acknowledging the Palestinian leadership of the movement. And I, we, I, I need to be absolutely clear you know, about that. It's a Palestinian-led movement. The same way the global BDS campaign targeting apartheid was South African-led. I mean, this is, this is a very important point. So when we, you know, Palestinian civil society issued our call back in 2005, now everybody knows that it's, you know, the BDS call. We were counting, honestly, we were counting on people of conscience rather than governments. We, we've learned, we studied and we learned the South African lesson. When the South African, the anti-apartheid movement, you know, issued its call back in 1958, 59, you know, a handful of ANC activists gathered in, in London and they decided to issue a call, um, you know, calling on the international community to work of the apartheid system until it complies with international law, etc., etc. Now, the South African comrades at the time knew very well that, you know, governments, excuse me, governments of the world, of the world wouldn't immediately heed the call. And this is why they were banking on civil society. And that's what they told us. And this is why <clears throat> uh, we, we've decided to address, you know, ordinary people, civil society organizations, ordinary people, you know, buying goods in supermarkets, artists, uh, cultural figures, cultural organizations, academics, athletes, uh, you know, sporting clubs, etc., etc. In fact, um, we have our own definition of, you know, the international community. What do we mean by the international community? Our international community um, consists of civil society, as I said, churches, pension funds, municipalities, clubs, music bands, universities, etc. We, we, we are aiming to isolate Israel the same way the apartheid system was isolated. But in fact, what we are aiming is um, 
isolating, you know, the apartheid institutions that support the multi-tiered, you know, system of oppression in, in, in Palestine. We wanted, back in 2005, we still want the same thing, to isolate Israel's regime of oppression, as well as, as, well as corporations um, and institutions that are implicated in its denial of Palestinian rights under international law. International law, you know, of paramount importance to us was and remains uh, the making, uh, or rather making the movement inclusive and being anchored in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Because we knew very well that we would be accused of having a sort of an, you know, anti-Semitic discourse, et cetera, et cetera. And this is why we made it absolutely clear that you know, our call is anchored in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So based on this, um, we, were, we were confronted with, with questions. Still people are asking questions. And I know some of you, um, you know, would be asking the same, the same questions about what would be considered normalization. And here I'm trying to answer Maya's question. I mean, what can be considered normalization and what not? Um, and this is why we worked on, on what has become the anti-normalization criteria that were adopted by a near consensus, a near consensus of the largest Palestinian civil society entities uh, since November 2007. Um, at the first conference or the first national BDS conference. We specifically, we specifically called for boycotting events and activities that portray the relationship of colonial oppression, which is inherently abnormal, as everybody would agree, as if it were normal. You know, making the abnormal oppression of the Palestinian people look as if it were normal. So we argued that this kind of activities, you know, contribute to whitewashing Israel's crimes, occupation, apartheid, and settler colonialism against us, the Palestinian people. And as I said, inspired by the South African anti-apartheid model, we went further and issued what became the boycott guidelines. Boycott guidelines to guide people who have heeded our call. We were always asked by, you know, um, activists, solidarity activists, what do you exactly want us to do? You know, I remember this very well when I was in South Africa, you know, our South African comrades, our American comrades would ask us, I mean, I mean after the signing of the Oslo Accord, the facade of the Oslo Accord and the so-called two-state solution, what do you want us to do? We want to support you. What can we do? Um, you as the victims of apartheid Israel should be guiding us. And this is why we issued the, boyc the boycott guidelines to guide people who have heeded our call over the world, all over the world. And to counter 14 years of, you know, the Oslo Accord, the facade of the, of the peace industry, and its culture of normalization. Unfortunately, yeah, that's, that's what, 
you know, what's going on between 1993 and 2005 when we issued our, you know, BDS call, a form of normalization. And, and those projects, projects that I'm talking about had to some extent, you know, those projects of normalization since then of the Oslo Accords, given a false impression of symmetry or rather parity, symmetry, parity between the oppressor, Israel in this case, and the oppressed, us Palestinians. <coughs> the oppressor in South, you know, Africa was, you know, the apartheid system and the oppressed, you know, the indigenous population of South Africa. There is no parity. There was no parity in South Africa. There was no parity in the American South. And, and you, know, you know very well that 14 years of negotiations between the leadership of the PLO and Israel, between you know, the two parties, had in fact obfuscated the lines separating colonizers and colonized and made them both, the colonizer and the colonized, look equally responsible for the so-called conflict. Now that is important for us. We want things to be very clear. The same way it was very clear in South Africa. So the point is that Israel's, you know, multi-tiered system of oppression, namely occupation, colonization, apartheid, settler colonialism, etc., had been reduced to a conflict as if you have two equal parties here. And this is, this for, 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 for Palestinian civil society is um, intellectually dishonest. And honestly, we said it very clearly, it is morally rep reprehensible. I mean, to equate the oppressor with the oppressed and any project, any project, that promotes this, this kind of, you know, false impression ought to be boycotted. That was our point, and this remains um, the case. So, and, and I, want, I want to be clear because sometimes people say when BDS is dogmatic, boycotts everything that is Israeli, boycotts individuals. Actually, I beg to differ. I beg to differ. Uh, BDS is undogmatic. Um, and, and it made it absolutely clear that it welcomes cooperation with those Israelis. I mean, let me be clear about that. It welcomes cooperation with those Israelis who recognize our basic rights under international law. We have, you know, we have, uh, you know, comrades in Israel uh, boycott from within. Israeli comrades who have heeded our call. And this is, this is very clear, and I, this is very sensitive for us. So we welcome cooperation with those Israelis who recognize our basic rights under international law, including right of return. And that is condition number one. Condition number two, those Israelis should be involved with us in a common struggle, or what we call not coexistence, but co-resistance. So two conditions. One, the Israelis should recognize our rights under international law, and any project that we have with them has to be a form of co-resistance rather than coexistence 
for resistance against Israel's oppression of the entire Palestinian, um, the entire Palestine or Palestinian people, whether in the Gaza Strip and or in the West Bank occupied territories, or in the diaspora, or the third class citizens of the state of Israel, 1.6 million Palestinian citizens of the state of Israel who are treated as not even second class, but rather third class um, citizens. And um, let me add, you know, one last point here. Contrary to the false claim, you know, made by some people um, and, you know, some individuals, including, by the way, very well-intentioned individuals, BDS actually has never, has never targeted individuals. BDS does not target individuals, but rather institutions. And this is very important. Institutions that are implicated in Israel's systematic violation of, of Palestinian human rights. And I'm not sure actually um, whether we have enough time now to address the issue of political solutions. And you know, that was BDS and BDS, um, you know, um, and let me remind everybody here that, you know, that BDS does not, does not take a position on the ultimate political solution for Palestinians. That is very clear. BDS is a rights-based movement. Um, it includes supporters of both two states and a single democratic state with equal rights for all. Um, it is, as I said, it is a rights-based movement. And um, as, as argued by human rights activists, this approach, the rights-based approach, shifts the paradigm away from charity. The Palestinian cause is not a cause of charity. Um, and and the, the, the rights-based approach shifts it from charity towards moral, moral, moral duty imposed on the world through the international consensus of human rights. But, and I know that, you know, people always ask me, what is the political solution? What is the end game? And since BDS does not endorse a political solution and does not have a position on political solutions, you know, you have people in Palestine, the official leadership of the Palestinian people believes in the so-called two-state solution, all right? I personally, and this is my personal view, I believe that, and I fully support, um, calls for a single democratic state, a single democratic state that recognizes and accepts all inhabitants of historic Palestine as equal citizens as equal citizens and full partners in building and developing a new shared society. Exactly like South Africa. Exactly like South Africa. Like what you have in the United States of America. A new society, shared society, free from all colonial subjugation and racial discrimination. That is what I personally support. That is not the position of the BDS campaign. Um, everyone, including repatriated Palestinian refugees, 
would be entitled to equal rights regardless of ethnic, religious, gender, sexual, or any other, you know, um, identity. All citizens have to be equal regardless of, you know, those identities. And that, I believe, is, you know, the solution that can guarantee justice in Palestine. Thank you so much for listening to me and being patient. Um, um, I need to look at the questions now and um, I'm not... Um, Sana Khalil will now uh, conduct the Q&A for you so she can order that for you. Okay. Um, Okay, hi. Hi, Sana. <laughs> hi, Dr. Ayyad. Thank you so much for um, that wonderful presentation. So we're going to get started with a few questions. Um, the first one that I have is um, someone's asking, what about all the thousands of missiles and rocket attacks by Hamas from Gaza from 2000 to 2013? Isn't there aggression on both sides? So if you could just address that question. First. Oh, sorry, sorry, I'm sorry. I mean, you know, because of the internet connection problem here. I had half of the question, you know, about Hamas, sorry, come again. Yeah, so it's saying, yeah. what about the thousands of rockets by Hamas from 2000 to 2013? Isn't there aggression on both sides, is what it's asking. Yeah. You know, um, I think, look, I think, uh, you know, I've addressed this question, you know, the question of two sides, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that we do not have two, two sides to the, uh, you know, to the situation here in, in, in Palestine. I mean, there were no two sides in South Africa. You know, there was, you know, the oppressor community, settler colonial community, and those, you know, that were oppressed. But since Hamas was mentioned, and I was actually, you know, expecting this question. Let me be very, very, very clear. Back in 2000, um, in 2006, if you remember, January 2006, and after the, the you know, uh, the war in, uh, on, on in Iraq, et cetera, et cetera, and, um, you know, the Americans wanted to create what was called the New Middle East, if you remember, Condoleezza Rice, et cetera, et cetera. And um, they wanted to create a New Middle East characterized by democracy. So they asked people, you know, to vote for their representatives. We went to the polling stations in 2006. Um, the elections in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, and let me be absolutely clear about that. I myself did not vote in 2006 because I believe that you cannot have democracy, true democracy, under the barrel of the gun of the occupier. But when people went to the polling station in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, people wanted to vote against the Oslo Accords, against the facade of the two-state solution. And the only alternative political force that people saw was, you know, Hamas. And this is why people voted for Hamas in the hope of bringing down the Oslo Accords, in the hope of, you know, putting an end to the facade, facade of the two-state solution. And Hamas won the elections at the time and formed the government in, 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 the, in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. And the world did not accept that for all the reasons that you know. I was opposed to that myself, but that was the democratic choice of about 60% of the people who went to the polling station in 2006 in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. Not all Palestinians went to the polling stations. 
Palestinians living in Israel as second class citizens were not allowed to do that. Um, Palestinian refugees living in the diaspora were not allowed to do that, but only 40% of the Palestinian people did that. Hamas won the elections. Hamas is exactly like everybody else, like all other, or all other organizations on the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, is part of the resistance movement against, you know, colonization, apartheid, uh, ethnic cleansing, etc., etc. Now, does everybody agree with the, you know, ideological background and the political program of Hamas? Not really. Not really. Not, not everybody. And according to the latest surveys here uh, in, 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 in the West Bank, if we have elections, and we are supposed to have elections for the Legislative Council in, um, in May, which means after, what, uh, four months in May, uh, Hamas would be getting 30 to 32% of the vote. And Fatah would be getting also about 30 to 32%. That makes about 60% between Fatah and Hamas, okay? And that leaves about 40% of the population, you know, undecided. I personally do not think that we should be going to the following stations, yeah. But so coming back to the question about Hamas, yeah, Hamas has opposition here. Many people are opposed to the rule of Hamas in the Gaza Strip, but Hamas is part of the general, national, and political movement in, in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. Yeah, and I hope that I answered this question. So the next question is, um, yeah. okay, the next question, yeah. how do you respond to the challenges that BDS is anti-Semitic? You know, I've already said that, you know, the BDS movement is anchored in, you know, international law, international law, and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And therefore, you know, the last part of, uh, of my presentation, of my talk, I said, that we believe in equality for all human beings, regardless of religion, regardless of gender, regardless of race, etc., etc. And notice, most of the, my talk was about, you know, what we learned from, you know, the struggle of the anti-apartheid movement in, 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 in South Africa. And then I said it's very clear: the BDS movement is undogmatic, undogmatic in, in the sense that. It comes to operation with, you know, those Israelis who recognize our basic rights under international law. Now, if you work and cooperate with individuals who target Israel's system of oppression of the Palestinians, colonization and apartheid, does that make you anti-Semitic? That is my point. All right. Oh, no, the BDS campaign is a campaign that, finds on, that fights on behalf of the Palestinian people and international law, trying to implement international law in Palestine based on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Now, the point is, Israel, as soon as we issued our call back in 2005, Israel started a legal war and the campaign of Hasbara. Hasbara is the Hebrew word for, you know, propaganda, trying to tarnish the image of the BDS movement and BDS activists and portraying them as, you know, anti-Semitic monsters, etc., etc. But notice, even anti-Semitism 
I mean, it is not a Palestinian or a Muslim or an Arab phenomenon. In fact, we suffer from anti-Semitism the same way Jews in Europe and the West suffer from anti-Semitism. It is actually a European phenomenon rather than an Arab phenomenon. And notice, as a BDS movement, I said it, my personal view is to have a shared society where all people live regardless of their religious background. What we are fighting against as BDS activists is, you know, religious supremacy, be it Jewish or Muslim or even Christian. All right, um, great answer to the question. Um, so this next question is, do you have any hope that Biden will change anything for Palestinians? Yeah, this is a very excellent question because, you know, um, I remember when, uh, when, sorry, when um, Barack Obama, um, you know, uh, became the, the first black president of the United States of America, people were very hopeful. And I was, um, I remember at the time I was at the studio, you know, interviewed by um, a, um, a TV channel and somebody else, um, actually Hamas official was with me. And then we were asked the same question, all right, about Barack Obama. His answer was that, you know, he said, you know, it reminds us of Martin Luther King, he said. And Martin Luther King's, you know, famous I have a dream speech. And he said that we were sure that, you know, Barack Obama would change American policy in the Middle East and he would do, you know, try to implement international law, stop the, uh, you know, um, American support for Israel, et cetera, et cetera. I was not that hopeful. I was not that hopeful at the time. And what happened is I was right. I was proven to be right after two terms you know, two presidential terms by, um, by Barack Obama. And I can tell you now, the Biden administration will continue the same policy. You know, Barack, Obama, Ob Barack Obama's policy. The Biden administration, excuse me, will not stop its financial and military support of apartheid Israel. The Biden administration will keep repeating the same two-state mantra, you know, state for two peoples living side by side without taking concrete steps to make that happen, you know? And in order to make that happen, I personally do not believe that an a sovereign independent Palestinian state on 22% of historic Palestine can be achieved. That cannot be achieved because Israel has taken irreversible steps to put an end to the two-state solution by building the apartheid wall, by annexing more than 30% of the West Bank, by turning the Gaza Strip into the largest open air prison on earth, etc., etc. Irreversible steps. The American administration has unfortunately supported that practically by um, recognizing under, uh, of course, Donald Trump, by recognizing Jerusalem, including Eastern Jerusalem, 
as the city, as the capital of apartheid Israel by moving the American embassy. <coughs> I'm sorry, I'm losing my voice. <coughs> by moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to, 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 to Jerusalem, by cutting aid, aid to UNRWA, United Nations Relief and Work Agency, by recognizing the Golan Heights as part of apartheid Israel, etc., etc. So where are the Palestinians supposed to have their independent Palestinian state right now? It's impossible. So what is the solution? Is Joe Biden's administration going to endorse the Palestinian BDS call? I mean, that's what the Palestinian, you know, the Palestinian political, you know, political forces and Palestinian civil society want right now. No, the American administration is not going to do that. The American State of Secretary has already said it in his first statement last week that they are not going to reverse the steps taken, already taken by the, the Trump administration. They are not going to move the, um, the embassy, <coughs> excuse me, the embassy back, um, you know, till, to Tel Aviv. So there will, be step, there will be steps taken by the new American administration where they will, they will resume ties with the Palestinian Authority and, you know, some financial support and that's it. And that's it, nothing else. <coughs> Sorry, can we take one, one more question? And, yeah. <coughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Do we have, so we have time for just one more question. Okay. So this is, I think, a timely question because you talked about the incidents of COVID-19 in Gaza. So if you could please address, because a couple of people are asking, what is the potential for receiving the vaccine? What is the vaccination situation um, in Palestine and in Gaza? Yeah. Yesterday, made <clears throat> Israel made made it absolutely clear that it wouldn't be allowing you know vaccines into Gaza. Today we heard a statement by um, the Palestinian Authority that Israel would be allowing into the West Bank, not the Gaza Strip, um, you know, five thousand uh, five thousand shots of the of, of 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 the vaccine. But so far um, Israel has not been allowing vaccines into the Gaza Strip. And by the way, I must mention. I work at the Al-Aqsa University. We lost um, our, uh, you know, our fourth colleague to the to the deadly coronavirus. We have lost four colleagues at the um, from Al-Aqsa University, and Israel has said it and made it absolutely clear that it will not allow vaccines into the Gaza Strip. What are we going to do about that? I really don't know, and this is why again, again. This emphasizes the point I was just mentioning and the point I was just saying. I mean, the, 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 the utmost necessity of the intervention of the international community. You know, in 2009, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> in 2009, I shared a platform with, uh, with a, one of the Holocaust survivors, the late Hayo Meyer from Holland. And um, what he said, at that uh, meeting, what he said in that meeting is that, you know, you cannot bring, you know, the, the, the elephant and the mouse, lock them up in a room and then ask them to negotiate. That is impossible. That's an impossible situation. The lion has to intervene on behalf of the mouse. And he said to us, the lion in this case is the BDS movement 
or the international community. You do not have to equal parties here. You're not, you do not have to equal parties. I mean, Israel is, Israel has, some people say the fourth, the fourth strongest, you know, army in the world, equipped with more than 400 nuclear heads, Merkava uh, um, tanks, um, F-16, F-35, F-36, etc., etc. And what do Palestinians have? Nothing, absolutely nothing. I mean, firecrackers that the international community condemns thinking that they are rockets. What do we have? Stones? You remember uh, during the Gaza Freedom, uh, not the Gaza Freedom March, the um, return, March of Return. March of Return. I mean, I took part in the March of Return. Thousands of, you know, innocent civilians, refugees, went to the wire separating or surrounding Gaza, and then Israel started shooting. We lost thousands of innocent, innocent lives. And what did the international community do? Absolutely nothing. And now Israel is not allowing vaccines into, into Gaza. The official international community is, again, doing nothing. And this is why, as BDS movement, BDS activists, we have lost hope in the international, the official bodies of the international community. Neither the United Nations, nor Security Council, nor European Union, etc., etc., is prepared to have the guts and, you know, call a spade a spade and ask Israel to stop its war crimes in, in, in Palestine. And this is why, this is why I'm conducting this talk, you know, right now with you people. We are banking on conscientious people. And this is why we think, you know, 72% of ordinary Americans have made it absolutely clear that they think, you know, BDS is, you know, is um, a call for human rights, that they support our right to BDS. You know, the majority of voters for the Democratic Party support our right to BDS, support our right to BDS. And this is why it is time. It is time for us to call the shot, for you people to call the shot. And we said it, this is our South African moment, but we can really reach that dawn, which South African, um, the South African people reached in 1994, when they saw the apartheid system coll collapsing and you know, voting for Nelson Mandela as the first black president of South Africa, only with the support of ordinary people, churches, synagogues, clubs, etc., etc. Otherwise, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you what is happening, happening right now against us here in Gaza is, as my friend and comrade Elan Pape calls it, incremental genocide. You, okay, that's the end of it. Yes, Sana. <clears throat> answer Dr. Aid, thank you so much for um, all of your detailed and thorough responses and to really rally everybody to support the BDS movement. It's so crucial and imperative right now. I'm going to turn it back to Janet from Middle East Peace Now so she can wrap up. Thank you. Sana, thank you very much and it's nice to meet you. <laughs> um, thank you, Shukran, for uh, your incredible talk. I, I wrote lots of notes down and I'll probably listen to the recording all over again. Very profound and extremely um, timely. Uh, thank you again. 
Uh, I would like to let all of you know that uh, keep your ears and eyes out for the next announcement of our Middle East Forum, which will be February 27th. We will be featuring author and human rights advocate Mazin Kumsiya. Um, Dr. E, do you know Mazin? Figured you would. <laughs> uh, he has spoken with MEP. Good. Good, glad to hear that endorsement. Um, he will be speaking February 27th. He has spoken with Middle East Peace Now uh, in the past, some years ago, and he's very much looking forward to a reappearance. Again, my thanks to all of you and to all of our co-sponsors and our co-host as well, and to Sana for directing the Q&A. Um, have a great day, everybody. And